Here's another Bible study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. you guys. It's uh, wonderful to be here again. I've been here a few times in the past. Twice, I think, actually. I, I don't remember much. But uh, my name is Trevor Rubenstein. I'm born and raised in a Jewish home in northern Minnesota, um, actually in Virginia, Minnesota. There was a decent-sized Jewish population up in that area at one point in time, actually 110 families. Um, because uh, we, when we immigrated, when most of the Jewish people immigrated to America, it was actually during a time to where the Iron Range was booming and you would want to go to a thriving area so you would have a better chance of making it once you came into the country. And uh, so that's where my family was from. We were raised in what is called conservative Jewish home. That means you conserve the traditions of Judaism. And uh, when my family moved, we, mo we left uh, the, we left the uh, Iron Range when I was nine years old. The reason being is because the mines were beginning to kind of decline in productivity. And uh, so when we left, when I was young, went to a town called Littleton, Colorado, which unfortunately is most well known for uh, one of the kind of first school shootings, mass school shootings, uh, Columbine. Um, but anyway, uh, so I, we went there when I was young and, uh, and I was really a lost kid. I suffered from depression, from being suicidal. Um, yeah, I think that this is a fascinating component. If you, if you think about this, really as human beings, we have two things of value, two things. This is important, I think, for us to recognize. It's the ability to love others and the ability to receive love. And the reason that, that the Lord had made us that way so that we could have relationship both with him and with one another. And when you don't feel fulfilled in that, you feel lost. And so I found a place where I could find something that temporarily kind of filled me with that, and that was with the drug and alcohol crowd. And so for most of my youth, I was an unprescribed pharmaceutical test engineer, and, uh, <laughs> and, and it led to uh, destructive behavior, as you would assume, and uh, eventually I got expelled from school, in which case I got... Um, I received a degree which is uh, called a GED, which I think stands for good enough degree. And, uh, went, and I went to a local community college. And while I was at a local community college, I was tricked into a Bible study, by, uh, by, actually by a cult, interestingly. Um, and, and I say tricked not because they did anything to deceive me, but actually uh, it was that the Lord didn't allow me to hear what I was being invited to. Because while they were a cult, they did actually use the Bible. And so it was the first time I ever, I ever read the words of Jesus. You see, as a Jewish man, uh, we would read the scriptures, but generally we would only read them in Hebrew. And while I could read Hebrew, I did a 45-minute service in Hebrew to get my bar mitzvah when I was 13 years old. Um, while I could read it, I didn't know it, what it meant. I just knew how to pronounce and how to say things uh, clearly at one point. Um, less clearly today. But anyway, so, uh, so, uh, so what happened was it was the first time I actually read the words of Jesus, and it was also the first time I ever felt the presence of God. Um, so as a Jewish man, I was very clear that the one thing we could not do is believe in Jesus. So if I knew that's what we were doing, I wouldn't have entered into that. Would have been okay. It was, it, was, it was completely acceptable from my family that I was an atheist. It was even somewhat acceptable what I was doing with my free time, unfortunately. Uh, it would have been okay with my family if I worshipped many gods, but the one thing that would not have been okay is if I believed that Jesus was the promised Messiah. 
But when I read the words of Jesus, three things became very real because I truly felt God's presence. One thing was God is real. He revealed himself to me that very moment. The second thing was is that everything that I was doing in my life was separating me from him because I was living a horribly sinful life. And it's amazing how distant God can seem when you're living in sin because he cannot ex excuse me, exist in the presence of sin. And then the third thing that hit me was the only way that I can come to know him is through this person, Jesus. With no theological training or understanding, these things truly hit me immediately. And so after struggling with this for a while, eventually I gave my life to the Lord, and he truly changed me. He, he saved my life, quite literally, because I, I'm very confident that if it wasn't for him, I would have taken it. So for me, Jesus was literally the difference between life and death. Uh, I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for him. I, I owe him everything. And not just in a physical sense, which is, of course, of infinite value, but also in an eternal sense, because when you give your life to Jesus, he dies and takes away the consequences of your sin so that then you can be forgiven. And in him, if you put your faith and trust in him, just as he rose from the dead, you too will be raised. How do we know this? Well, there's only one person in all of human history that bodily overcame death, and his name is Jesus. You see, Buddha's in the grave. Muhammad's in the grave. Moses even had his body in the grave. And so we understand that there's only one person that's overcome death. And if you want to learn how to fly, you should probably learn from somebody who flew before. And if you want to understand how to overcome death, there's only one person that's ever shown us that he can do it physically, and that's Jesus. Different religious systems can say that your soul or your spirit goes and does this. That's unprovable. You can't prove what your spirit does, but you can't Dis, but you can always prove what your body has done. That's physical, and so it's very different. So we have a wonderful God, and he saves us. And so as a result of this, of my salvation, of Jesus entering into my life, I became broken for the lost. And so I reached out to many people. I never joined the cult, by the way, that, that brought me into it by the grace of God. But, uh, but, I, but I, I reached out to people that I really had a heart for. So for many years, I was involved with drug and alcohol rehabilitation. I was involved with uh, reaching out to different cults and different uh, religious organizations. Uh, and most recently, by the grace of God, I've been able to focus on reaching people that are very near and dear to me, my family members, the people of Israel, the Jewish people. And so this is what Chosen People Ministries does. Chosen People is the oldest organization in America to reach Jewish people with the gospel. And actually, they're based in New York City, uh, the other holy land. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and what we're all over the world. I happen to be the Minnesota branch leader of that organization. And actually, I attend a Calvary Chapel. I attend the Calvary Chapel that's in uh, Twin Cities um, with Mike Fernandez. And so, um, and so it's really a blessing to be here. Um, I, I don't get a chance to speak in Calvary's often, which is why I mistakenly wore a suit today. Um, it should have been a Hawaiian shirt, I think, was the official pastoral. Uh, garb and, and Calvary's, but uh, but anyway, it's it's really a blessing to be here today and to be with you guys today. What we're going to look at is Jesus, the Good Shepherd. This is a a fascinating teaching where we actually will look through what godly leadership looks like through John chapter ten. John ten is going to be our primary text today. You guys will be able to follow with the slides, but also it might be helpful to turn in your Bibles. That's the primary text. We'll jump around with some other things, but that's where we're going to look at. This also goes into Hanukkah, 
And it also goes into who the Pharisees and Sadducees are, who the Jewish people are, but most importantly, the focus is what is godly leadership. So before we go any further, let's get before the Lord and pray. Abba Father, Lord, we thank you, God, and we praise you for this opportunity, God, to come together today. Lord, we ask that today, Father, that you help us grow, Father, in faith and understanding, God. Father, that you help us grow in wisdom, Lord, and most importantly, God, that your name be glorified, Father. Do your work in us, Father, so that we can be prepared to serve you in ways that would be honoring and would touch you. We love you so much. We praise your holy name, God. In the mighty name of your Son, Jesus, B'Shem Yeshua, Amen, Amen. So again, this is, this is the organization I work for. Just very quickly, our mission statement is to pray for evangelized disciples, serve the Jewish people everywhere, and to help fellow believers do the same. Let me actually just make brief mention of this before we go into the, into the topic. Uh, right now, in the diaspora, so outside of Israel, we're seeing record numbers of Jewish people come to faith in Jesus. In America, the, the estimates are nearly a million Jewish people are professing Jesus. Actually, more. It's closer to a million and a half in America. But out of that million and a half, some of them might not be devout. They might be re related to some type of historical kind of uh, orthodox faith or something to that extent. But, but the estimates are nearly a million people. So it's actually an amazing time to be involved in Jewish ministry. And I think actually the clearest sign of the return of Jesus is that we're seeing Jewish people turn. And the younger generations in mass. Fascinating time actually right now. So, wonderful ministry to be involved with. Today we're going to talk about Jesus. Yeshua is his Hebrew name, the Good Shepherd. We're going to start here. This is a very important section of scripture, particularly for you young people who are blessed to be here today. So this section of scripture speaks about how faith works. Listen very carefully, okay? It says this, as Moses was speaking to the people of Israel, the Lord did not make his covenant with our fathers, but with us. Those who are here today, all of us who are alive, the Lord talked with you face to face from the mountain, excuse me, face on the mountain from the midst of the fire. Important statement, because the Lord makes this very clear that each and every person's faith needs to be face to face with God, personal with God. You cannot inherit your faith through your parents. It has to be yours. This is personal. It's between you and God every time. Your parents have faith Praise God, that is not good enough for you. You need to know Jesus personally. And that was always his intention because God loves you and he wants to know each and every one of you personally. And so it's not good enough that you just want to follow what your parents did. That's wonderful. That's obedience to your parents. But there's more because God wants to have a relationship with you. And this is what he spoke to the people of Israel. You see, many of the Jewish people, what they do is they continue to follow a tradition because their parents did, as opposed to seeking to know God intimately, as it says here, face to face, which is exactly what this Hebrew phrase means, panim v'panim. Because what happens is no one can see the face of God and live because he is holy, he is perfect. So this expression just simply means personally. When you speak to somebody face to face. That was his intention. 
And as the people of Israel rebelled against God, and there were difficult questions that came up against amongst them when they would have arguments or that somebody would, would try to figure out, well, we don't know what to do according to God's law. And so what God did is he put in charge judges who then could make the decisions amongst the people of Israel in difficult situations. This is in Deuteronomy chapter 1. Verses 13 and 16, it says this, Choose wise men, understanding, knowledgeable men from among your tribes, and I will make them heads over you. Then I commanded your judges at that time, saying, Hear the cases between your brethren, and judge righteously between a man and his brother, or a stranger who is with him. So God's intention with having these people was to help individuals to understand God's judgment in their life. Unfortunately, what happens, because humans have a wicked nature, if you guys haven't noticed, and part of that wicked nature is when you empower us, we will use that over other people. So what happened with these individuals that the Lord had empowered with his intention to help the people to understand God better, to know him more, is instead when they had to come to them, they used it for their own empowerment as opposed to empowering the people. And this became an abuse. And so that the Lord had to do something different. He had to create what we call the new covenant. Because in the Hebrew scriptures, one of the primary problems with the old covenant or the Mosaic covenant was that individuals who were in leadership position abused their power. So God was going to remove the necessity for these leaders to make these decisions by being able to connect with people directly. And this is what it says here in Jeremiah chapter 31, starting in verse 31. And I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It goes on in verse 33 and says, But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. And so it's not going to be because of someone else's authority. It actually goes on in other parts of this text and says God's going to write the law on your heart and put it on your mind because he wants to work with you intimately, each and every individual. And so because of abuse of leadership, God, one of the reasons, of course there's many others, but one of the reasons that God sent the Messiah is because when men led, it ended out being corrupt. But when God leads through his son who came to this world, things can be done perfectly and people can come to know him. Jesus specifically starts to address this issue with the Pharisees in John chapter 10. He makes this fascinating statement as we begin in verses 1 through 4. It says, Most assuredly I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. 
So now Jesus is starting to give an illustration to the religious leaders of Israel in the context for which the people would understand. Jesus often spoke to people within the place that they were so that they could grasp heavenly concepts through the things that they were interacting with here on earth. So for example, if someone was an engineer, he would speak to them in engineering terms that would relate to heavenly things. But engineering wasn't as popular a profession at this point in time as being a shepherd. And so obviously shepherd was one way that he could relate to the people. And so he's giving this illustration as to who are the religious leaders of Israel. Well, if they're coming about their position of power in a unjust manner, meaning that they are coming into the sheepfold through a way other than the front door. So if you come in the front door, you're following the rules. If you come over the fence, you're breaking the rules in order to establish your own power. And this is exactly what was occurring at this point in time and has occurred throughout history is individuals have established themselves in some form of absolute control over people as a means for them to get to God. Let me give you an illustration. So that there's a certain uh, branch of, uh, of Christian churches, I'm not going to name any names, that makes a statement that in order, yes I will, the Catholic Church, that makes, a, that, that makes a statement that in order to get to God, you have to go through their organization, okay? So in order to be forgiven of your sins, you have to confess them to your priest. If, and if you don't take the Eucharist, the communion that is blessed by the priest, then you don't actually take Jesus into your heart. What this starts teaching is it starts teaching in order to get to God, you have to go through this organization. Okay? So in essence, what they end out doing is this. Everybody do this for me. This is bad leadership. Okay? This is bad leadership. And it's unbiblical leadership. And it's actually coming in through a way that God did not establish. Because God did not say that you cannot be forgiven unless you go to the priest. God did not say that you cannot commune with the Lord unless a priest in particular blesses this bread. This is no different from what the rabbis were doing, where the rabbis were saying that the Torah, the law of Moses, is no longer with God, but now it is with them, with the religious leaders of Israel. So if you want to know what you have to do, you have to go through them to get to God. So Jesus is saying that he is the way. He is that door. And so what happens is that he is the shepherd of the sheep. And so he is saying that then he is the one that they would listen to because really the word is his. He, he orchestrated the rules. He made all this. They belong to him. If you think about this in a more practical manner, because the sheep belong to Jesus, and let me expound upon this just slightly, uh, what happens is, is God, who, who made you as human, as human beings? God. You belong to him. You're his. Not only did he make you, but then Jesus came and he died for you. So you owed such a huge debt that would have led to eternal condemnation, but God 
came down in the form of a man, offered himself as a sacrifice to then purchase you because your sin would have led to eternal condemnation, but he bought that, and so now you are indebted to him forever. So not only did he make you, but he paid for you. You belong to him. He loves you dearly. And he loves you in a greater way than any hireling could, right? I can't love you as much as Jesus does. No man can love you as much as Jesus does. So if you have your own job, for example, you have your own business, for example, and you have somebody that works for you, they do not care about your business as much as you do. It's yours. When you send your children to school, God bless teachers, but they do not care about your children as much as you do. They're yours. You love them more than anyone else could. So very practically, this is what he's illustrating regarding himself and the religious leaders of Israel. It continues in John chapter 10, verses 11 through 18, and he goes on and says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for his sheep, but a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he's a hireling and does not care about the sheep. Uh, there's nothing wrong with being an employee. Uh, I'm an employee, right? It's, it's a blessing. It's a wonderful thing. And that's what he's saying. But again, an employee is not willing to die for his employer in a normal circumstance. But the one who owns this, who this is his, right, he cares enough to die for them. It's just a different level of commitment. Jesus is saying that he loves you so much that he's willing to die for you. He was willing to give everything for you. What, what leader, what leader in the world can you say gave their life for you? Only Jesus. Because if they gave their life for you, then they're not available to lead any longer. Jesus himself rose from the dead. He was able to overcome and to show that he loves you to the point of being sacrificial. As it continues in John 10, starting in verse 14, it says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And the other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Who here is not Jewish? few of you. <laughs> Verse 16 is about you. Many, many, many times, this is one of the Bible verses that's written specifically about you. And I don't mean about... Uh, about uh, you guys as a group of people, although that's included, but I'm talking about you individually. You're written in the Bible if you've given your life to Jesus. Actually, you're written in the Bible if you've rejected him. It's just you don't want to know what those verses say about you. But if you've given your, ver your life to Jesus, look at that. John chapter 10, verse 16, if you're not Jewish, is written about you. Powerful. And there's many, 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 countless verses that are. Verse 17, it says, Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down myself. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it up again. This command I have received from my Father. Jesus overcame death, right? 
But something that's very important about this verse specifically for the Jewish people is unfortunately throughout their history when they lived in Europe, they suffered tremendous persecution. And they suffered tremendous persecution partially because after the Romanization of the church, they had to find someone to demonize to justify their own position of being the head of the church, and that was going to be the Jewish people. And they said, look at you guys are the Christ killers, okay? But according to, Paul, according to Peter, Jesus died by a Jewish court and a Roman court. He died by the Jewish people and by the Roman people, according to Acts chapter 4. But what happens is, is you don't ever hear Italians called Christ killers. But the Jewish people became the scapegoats, which is completely against the word of God. What Peter was saying when he said that Jesus died both by Jewish people and by Gentiles is that he died by everybody for everybody so everyone could be forgiven of their sins. And if Jesus did not die, your sins would be held upon you. And so Jesus says that he lays down his own life. Nobody takes it from him. Remember, he told Pilate that if he desired, he would call down angels from heaven and they would stop his crucifixion. But that was not his calling. So instead of demonizing the people of Israel, instead we need to understand God's mission and that he was able to allow to happen whatever he so desired and be broken for the people of our Lord that don't know him because their eternity is is not promised anything good. When Jesus is using this section of scripture, you'll notice this, and this is something I'm going to point out to you that is often overlooked. Jesus is always, not, all, not every instance, I guess, well, probably every instance, but I'm not 100% sure, but pretty much always referring to the Hebrew scriptures, referring to the Old Testament. Every time he states anything, almost always it is in some form of reference to the Old Testament scriptures. When he's calling himself the good shepherd and he's condemning the shepherds of Israel, this language would have been known to the religious leaders of Israel because the prophets used this exact language over and over and over to speak about condemnation of religious leaders. If you look here in Ezekiel chapter 34, look at what the prophet Ezekiel says, uh, spoken of by the Lord's instruction. Prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God to the shepherds. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? Remember, this is what they're doing, right? This. They're pointing everyone to themselves. You need to go through me to get to God. They're using that for their own empowerment, okay? But they should be feeding the people. Verse 3, you eat the fat and clothe yourselves with wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the flock. The weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who were sick, nor bound up the broken, nor brought back that which was driven away, nor sought what was lost, but with force and cruelty you have ruled them. So what happens is godly leadership should look something like this. What we should do is we should point other people to the Lord. We should help them to understand who God is. We should help them grow in their faith. We should help them to be able to be strengthened in how to serve God in a godly manner. We always should be pointing people to the Lord, not to ourselves. This is not about self-empowerment. 
Godly leadership is wonderful. It's biblical. It's important. It's fundamental. The Lord established leaders, but the hearts of the leaders needs to be to help the people to know God, as opposed to using the people for their own empowerment. Okay? This is godly leadership. This is what you're blessed with at this very church, is your pastor has a desire for you to grow closer to the Lord. He has a desire for you to get closer to God, and he wants to empower you and to teach you how to do that. This is why week after week after week, he teaches you the word of God. This is wonderful. This is what was intended, not this, this. Your pastor doesn't tell you that you have to go through him to get to God. He'll encourage you to pray. He'll encourage you to read the word. He'll encourage you to do these things. He'll encourage you to do what's right before God. Okay? This is godly leadership. It's very different than what's happening in this first century. In John chapter 10, it continues. He goes on and makes a statement. Now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Does anybody know what the Hebrew word here for dedication is? Hanukkah. Who said that? God bless you, brother. This is Hanukkah. Hanukkah's in the Bible. Isn't that interesting? So, what happens is this is the time that Jesus comes to this location. What's the history of Hanukkah? Let me go over this briefly because this helps us understand the corruption of leadership in the history of the people of Israel. Because what happened at this point in time before the Feast of Hanukkah developed is that Greece had come in and had conquered much of the known world, including Israel. A horrible leader came and eventually took charge of this area and he treated the people of Israel horribly. He told them that if they served the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they would be killed. He would do horrific things. So, for example, if they found a woman who had circumcised her, her child, they would hang him to death around her neck and parade her down the streets of the cities of Jerusalem. There was a horrific, awful thing that the Greeks were doing. And so there was an individual by the name of Judas Maccabee and his family, actually it started from his father, where they decided that they were going to rebel and they were going to fight for their ability to serve God despite this horrible situation for what was occurring. And they fought and they gained their independence. Most of the Jewish holidays go like this, and Hanukkah is no exception. We just finished Passover. It's kind of the same thing. They tried to kill us. We survived. Let's eat. And, and that's, really the, that's really the celebration, unfortunately, for the Jewish people because historically they've been tried to eliminate by most major groups throughout world history. And so after, after Hanukkah happens and the Maccabees gain their independence, what happens is they come, actually during this fight, they come into the temple and they have to rededicate the altar because... When Antiochus Epiphany, who was the leader of Greece at this point in time, he went into the Holy of Holies, he took a pig, and he slaughtered it on the temple, in the temple, on the altar. This would have defiled the temple so that the altar could not be used for sacrifices any longer. And what we're going to do is I'm going to show you a section of 1 Maccabees. This is in a, this is, don't look for this in your Bible. You won't find it. 
This is not a book in your Bible, but it is kind of a historical account, skewed a little bit, a historical account as to what happened during this rebellion. It's in the Apocrypha. Um, I can explain to you if anybody wants to know after service, please come to me and I'll tell you exactly how Jesus shows that the Apocrypha and Deuteronical books are not part of Scripture. And I can show you that actually in Jesus' own words. Um, but, but beyond that, what this is, is it is a historical account. And so when we look at this and we go back to the reference in John chapter 10, it'll make more sense to you. It says this, then they cleansed the sanctuary. So the people of Israel then took over and they made the sanctuary clean and removed the defiled stones to an unclean place. Okay. This is very important. Remember this unclean place. They deliberate, excuse me, they deliberated about what to do with the, uh, the altar of burnt offering, which had been profaned. And they thought it best to tear it down so that it would not be a lasting shame to them that the Gentiles had defiled it. So they tore down the altar and stored the stones in a convenient place on the temple hill until a prophet should come and tell them what to do with them. Okay, so listen to this very carefully. This is an unclean place on the temple mount. What's the only unclean place on the Temple Mount? Well, uh, the Gentiles were considered unclean. And their part of the temple is called Solomon's Porch. So the very place that Jesus went was the exact location that the Maccabees had taken these defiled stones and put them in an unclean place on the Temple Mount to wait every Hanukkah the Feast of Dedication, to see a prophet to come to tell them, how do I make something unclean clean? This is the historic backdrop. Isn't history interesting? Because it kind of changes possibly even our understanding for what was occurring. Look, at there's even something we can learn from the Maccabees. Let's continue. And so Jesus comes and he tells them, because again, who can make what's unclean clean? Only Jesus. And so they, they asked him if he's the Messiah, and that's the reason. And look at what it goes on and says in John chapter 10, verse 25. I told you, and you do not believe, the works that I do in my Father's name. They bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep, in verse 26. Verse 27 goes on and says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me, goes on and says, And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones to stone him. So this is interesting. There are multiple reasons why they're doing this. One of which is they believe that he is saying that he's God and they tell him this, right? Because you being a man say that you're God. But what's interesting is actually, as you're about to see, when he calls himself the good shepherd, he's calling himself God. And they would have known that. Because Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. Okay, As you're going to see in Ezekiel chapter 34, as God is condemning the, the shepherds of Israel, he says, so, he says, because you have abused your power, I'm going to come and be your shepherd. Right? And so we're about to see that. But So they're, they're condemning him because he says that he's God. And this is another statement where he says, I and my father are one. And uh, so, you know, some people will make the argument, well, Jesus doesn't say that he's God. Well, the Pharisees understood what he was saying. 
We actually took the words of John chapter 10 and we presented them to Jewish people in Israel as this was translated into Hebrew. And we asked them, what's Jesus saying? He said, well, he says he's God. They understand it, right? And it's just very clear that's what Jesus is saying. He's God. And here it is, Ezekiel chapter 34. Look at the Lord's solution to corrupt leaders. Thus says the Lord God, indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. Who? God. God is their shepherd. As a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day he is among his, his scattered sheep, so I will seek out my sheep and deliver them from all places where they were scattered on a cloudy and dark day. I will seek what was lost and bring back what was driven away, bind up the broken and strengthen what was sick, but I will destroy the fat and the strong and feed them in judgment. This is what he says. He says that he's going to come and be their shepherd because they've abused their power and he's going to judge the leaders. Jesus' harshest condemnation was for the religious leaders because they abused the power of the people. And Jesus is fighting over people. That's what he's fighting over. That's, that's our fight. We're fighting for people. We're in a burning building. This, this building's, I don't mean this building. I'm not saying fire in a crowded building. That's not what's happening. But I'm saying that the world here really is a burning building. I mean, we've read the Bible. If, if anybody here has read the Bible, you know what's going to happen to this world, at least in the short term. It's, it's heading towards destruction. Our job is to take as many people out of that building before it burns as possible, to save them, to help them enter into eternity. Our job is not to save and preserve the world as it is. It's heading towards destruction. And this is very, very important. This is a, an important concept for us. And this is exactly what God is saying here, is he's saying that he's coming for the people. He's looking to save the people. That's his concern. And so the world will enter into judgment. But the people, God wants to know him. And he wants to forgive everyone who's willing to accept him. Verse, thir verse 22, it goes on and says, Therefore I will save my flock, and they shall no longer be prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them my servant David. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. This is an interesting statement. David at this point has been dead for hundreds of years. This is not referring to David. It's referring to the descendant of David, who is the promised Messiah, Jesus. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them, I, the Lord, have spoken. They shall know that I am the Lord when I have broken the bands of their yoke and delivered them from the hands of those who enslave them. Jesus came to save you from this corrupt system of thinking that you have to go through an organization or an individual to get to God so that instead you can know him personally. This is not an excuse to separate yourself from godly leadership that's essential, okay? It's essential. I think that we have made a mistake in the church today. I really do, because we have made the church so about me, so about you, that people think, well, it's about me. Why am I going to church? This is not about any of us. This is about an opportunity that we have to corporately get together and worship God. We should be blessed to come to church. We should not look for excuses to stay home. We shouldn't. The Lord told us to be in fellowship with one another. 
John chapter 10, it goes on and says this, verses 33 through 34. The Jews answered him saying, for good work, we do not stone you, but you bla but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. He is God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? This is maybe one of the most misunderstood sections of scripture in all of the Bible. Okay? This is the very last verse. There are Christian organizations that say, see, if you're a follower of Jesus, then you're a God. That's not what he's stating at all, okay? Let's break this down. I want us to understand this. This is important exegesis, okay? This is important understanding for how we study scripture. Because he says that, is it not written in your law you are gods? First of all, who is Jesus talking to here? Who's he talking to? Religious leaders of Israel, the Pharisees. So he's not talking about saved people. He's talking about people that he is condemning. And what's happening is he's actually quoting a psalm. If you understand how memory works, and so when I was 13 years old, I was able to do a 45-minute uh, message in Hebrew without understanding any word. Why? Because in Hebrew, we read the scripture to song. And song's easy to memorize. Think of how much space we have wasted in our minds with useless songs, right? Songs are very simple to memorize. There might be godly songs in your mind, but whatever it is, if you know a song to music, it's easy to remember things. This is a psalm. Psalms are all musical. They were all written to song, songs originally. So when Jesus starts singing this, they know the rest, okay? Okay. If I start singing a popular song to you, you would know the rest of the words, right? If I say, happy birthday to you, you know the next part, right? Because songs are easy to memorize. And so when Jesus begins to sing this, they know what he's referring to. Psalm chapter 82 is a condemnation to the religious leaders of Israel for abusing their power. And that's exactly what he's referring to. Listen to what it says. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are unstable. And I said, you are gods. All of you are the children of Most High. The very next verse, which I don't have on here, says but you shall die like men. This is a condemnation against religious leaders for their abuse of power. Why does it use this terminology? Because in the ancient world, if you are a king and you send a messenger to give a message on your behalf, that person is your representative. So that person is representing the king. That's why when, if you said something and the messenger said something opposite, he would be put to death. This is why the false prophets were killed, because they were supposed to be messengers of God, and if they misrepresented him, they had to be put to death. They were misrepresenting, okay? And so what happens is that if you are a messenger of God, you are presenting yourself on his behalf, which is exactly what it's referring to. There can be other meanings, deeper meanings, but clearly that's the one Jesus is referring to in this text. Very clear, very simple. Look at this. Jesus starts to, he breaks down good leadership and bad leadership very clearly. 
It says this in Matthew chapter 20, verse 25. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be among you, but whoever desires to be great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is godly leadership, okay? Everybody do this for me, and then do this. But do this for me, and do that. This is good leadership because what our jobs as leaders is to help empower others to be able to succeed in their calling with the Lord. So a godly parent is not to punish the children and have the children do things simply for their own benefit. Our daughter said, I can't wait till I'm a parent so I can punish my kids. (laughs) It's not how it works. Instead, our job is to help to a child to be as successful and as, as wonderful in their walk with the Lord and successful in life as possible. So we do these things to help to empower them, to help them to succeed in life, to help them to be wonderful parents themselves, to be better than we were. This is our hope. And the best thing that we can do as parents in doing that is teach them about their heavenly father. This is what good leadership is. In our jobs, in the places that we work, a good leader's job is to help to have his employees succeed in what they're doing. Because if your employees succeed, your business does. It is the ultimate goal. It is godly leadership. Leadership is not to help strengthen and empower myself. I don't have more children so that they can do more chores. That's not the reason. It's a benefit, but it's not the reason. No, but so this is godly leadership, and it's what he clearly says. Look at this in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. It says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. You don't need a person to know Jesus. You don't. But people can help strengthen your faith as they point you to him, as they help you understand, as they help you to grow in your faith, as they help to empower you within your calling. Understand this, when the Holy Spirit first fell upon the church in Acts chapter 2, which people received the flame of the Holy Spirit upon their heads? Which of them? All of them. All of them that believed. Everybody here has a calling from God. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus, he has a calling in your life. Everybody. And it's our job to help to empower you, to help you grow in that so that you can serve the Lord to the calling and the best of the ability that you are able so that you can help further the kingdom of God. Everybody here, without exception. Everybody. And so a good leader should strengthen you in that as opposed to just simply this. John chapter 17, verse 3 says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. You see, our job is to point people to him. And look at this, one of my favorite sections of scripture. I love this. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. 
This is really the calling of each and every one of us, without exception, in addition to whatever the Lord has put on your hearts and is desiring to you to, for you to do for his kingdom and to further his calling in your life is this. Now all things are of God, who will reconcile us to himself through Jesus Christ and given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation now then we are ambassadors of Christ as though God were pleading through us we implore you on Christ's behalf be reconciled to God our job is to connect people to him this is our job and whatever that looks like right if you're struggling in your marriage or the job of your pastor in that situation is to help both of you go closer to God because it's kind of like a triangle one spouse is here, one's there. The closer you get to God, the closer you get to one another, right? This is how we do these type of things. It's always pointing you to the Lord. It's always helping you to grow in those ways. If anybody thinks they can do this independently of one another, you're deceiving yourselves. The Lord did not make us that way. He made ourselves communal. He made, our, he made us so that we would depend on one another so we could help each other grow. Not so we could empower ourselves, but so that we could empower each other to further the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Abba God, we love you, Lord, and we praise you. Father, we thank you, God, for the great sacrifice that you have made for us, God. Father, showing us what leadership should look like. Lord, we ask that you give each and every one of us, God, a broken heart, Father. Lord, that you do in us, Father, what needs to be done so that we can serve you in greater ways. Father, let us consider ourselves second, Father, you first, Lord, and others, Father, at a higher place than ourselves, Father God, so that we can focus on how to help and how to minister and how to represent you properly. Lord, we love you and we need you. We thank you for your perfect example. You're so good to us. Your name be praised. In the name of Jesus, B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. Amen.